Thanks for listening to the City Church Podcast. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org. Take me back. That's our theme for this Easter Sunday. If you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 28. The passage that we read today will be on the screen. So don't feel like you have to follow along in your Bible. But I'm going to read probably a pretty familiar passage of Scripture if you've been around church any length of time. Or really in our culture today, most of us have heard this story or this passage at some level. And so we're going to dive right in, read 10 verses. We're going to be in the New Testament in a book written by Matthew, one of the followers of Christ and uh, explaining what happened on Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Are you ready? All right, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. If you're new to the Bible, every female in the New Testament is named Mary, okay? So just get used to that. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And he appeared, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Now, that's what you say when you have no other words to describe what you're seeing, okay? These guys were seeing something that was blowing their minds. Now, if you saw an angel and he was hanging out, you'd struggle to articulate what they look like too. And so this is not in the eyes of the writer, some fairy tale story that he's saying. He actually is writing what happened. And these people had the response that you would had if you went to go visit your dead friend's grave and there was an angel standing there. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men, right? And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said bam that's what we're here for come see the place where he lay then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold he is going before you to galilee there everybody say there there, thank you, you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly and ran from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. So he showed up early. Isn't it good when God shows up early? Don't we all like it when God shows up early? That's wonderful. So he says, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Obviously, they were scared, right? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there... There, yeah, good. They will see me. There, they will see me. So like we said, today's sermon called Take Me Back. Let's take a minute and just pray as we reflect back on an old story and see ourselves in it. God, we take this moment to pause from our busy lives. I know that many of us have things going on later this afternoon and all types of responsibilities. We're important people and all these different things going on. Uh, But God, in comparison to the truth of who you are, uh, our lives look pretty small. And so uh, I pray that you'd help us to pause in this moment. Help us, God, to slow down for just a couple of minutes and listen to the voice of your spirit. God, I pray that you meet every one of us exactly where we're at. And that somehow, by the miracle of heaven, that you would take these words and that we would not hear the voice of a man, but that God today, through the noise, we would hear the voice of God. We open up our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark Wessels was a dog lover. Do we have any dog lovers in the room? People who love dogs, okay, awesome. 
great. Uh, if you love cats, there's a different church that you can go to. So, uh, so God bless you as you leave this morning. Um, but Mark Wessels was a dog lover. He loved his dog, Buck, passionately. He just, just loved this dog. Three-year-old, black lab, smart dog, loved him. Unfortunately for Mark, the, uh, the, the rules at his apartment complex in Myrtle Beach uh, decided to change, and no longer could he have pets. And so the pet that he once had at Myrtle Beach in his apartment complex was no longer allowed to live there. And so he had to find a new home for his dog, Buck. And so he called his dad and he said, Dad, do you think you would take my dog because my dog can't live with me anymore? And so his dad agreed. And so Mark drove 500 miles to Winchester, Virginia and dropped off Buck. And it was a pretty emotional moment. He said goodbye. Buck licked him on the face. I don't know if that's actually true in the story, but that's the way I saw it in my mind. And so he drives home to Myrtle Beach without his dog. A few months go by and Buck is acclimating to his new home okay. He still misses his master, but he's there with his father's, uh, you know, his, his dad, his master's dad. And so uh, he's there for a few months. And then one day, Buck disappears. Okay. He disappears. And so dad calls his son. He says, Mark, we got a problem. Your, your dog has disappeared. I don't know where he is. He's gone. And so weeks go by, months go by. They don't know where he is. They put up posters. The dog is gone. After a few months of not knowing where Buck is, he shows up again in Myrtle Beach, just a couple miles from his master Mark's home, traveling 500 miles on his own to get home to his master. Now, I know that you think, oh, yeah, I saw that movie. No, no, this was real. All right, this was real. This actually happened, okay? And so, I mean, you can imagine the shock of finding your dog, you know, after dropping him off 500 miles away. And, uh, and so, you know, scientists, researchers try to say, well, how does a dog do that? You know, I mean, I can't even do that without a GPS. How does a dog do that? You know, and uh, the only thing that they can explain this mystery with is, uh, is, first of all, a dog is deeply loyal, right? He's faithful. You never heard of a cat doing that, right? Uh, so he's faithful. He's loyal. Cat's like, fine, leave. I don't care. Just give me food. You know, it doesn't matter to me. But, um, but uh, he's deeply loyal. He's deeply faithful. He's committed to his home. But then the other thing that's interesting about a dog is that they have this incredible, incredible sense of smell. Now, you walked into the room today probably already aware that a dog has an incredible sense of smell. But let me just emphasize for a moment how incredible this incredible sense of smell actually is. So a dog has approximately 300 million olfactory glands or olfactory, uh, what are they called, receptors in his nose. Okay, now I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but... But human beings have about 6 million compared to 300 million, okay? So if you're a guy, you probably have like 1 million, you know what I'm saying? And if you're my wife, you probably have like 100 million. But still, a dog has, uh, she can smell everything, it's incredible. But, uh, but a dog has way more than any human being, you know, has. And so these dogs have this incredible sense of smell. Just to give you an analogy to wrap your mind around, if you took the same ratio and you attributed it to, you know, eyesight, for example, you could see a third of a mile away away something crystal clearly. If you take the same ratio, the dog could see that same thing crystal clear 3,000 miles away. Okay. So that's how accurate saliva go down the wrong (coughs) pipe. How accurate a dog's sense of smell is. It seems that God has given canines both a deep commitment to home and this incredible capacity to smell their way back there. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that what God has given dogs in the natural, he has given humans in the spirit. That there is a spiritual reality that you and I can't see, but you have this capacity to sense its fragrance and to follow it. 
You have the capacity to smell the divine. You have inwardly a sense that enables you to become aware of something beyond yourself. Okay. Now, some of us have sensed it and smelled it, and we didn't know how to articulate it. But maybe you were walking through the woods, and here you are walking through the woods, and the pine needles are beneath your feet, and you can you know feel how soft they are, and there's these huge trees, and it creates kind of a canopy, and the sun just breaks through the canopy, and then something in your heart as you feel that and see that begins to soar. You know what I'm talking about? It's that inner something, that inner sense. Maybe you were sitting on a beach and it's a little chilly outside and then the sun breaks up over the clouds and it begins to just reflect like little pieces of, of glitter all over, the, all over the sea and something in your heart kind of elevates, kind of soars upward. And it's not just that it's beautiful. It's that there's something inside of you that catches a divine fragrance. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe you sensed it when you looked into the eyes of your newborn baby and there they are and they're wiggling around and you're looking at them and you sense this something, this divine awareness. Maybe you sensed it when somebody gave you a hug. Maybe you sensed it when you lifted your hands or started to sing one of the songs that we sang this morning. But something inside of you becomes aware of this divine, this sense, this inner understanding. It's like a dog's inner sense of smell. You have this supernatural inner sense of smell. Now, uh, for most of us, stay with me this morning, for most of us, uh, that inner sense of smell gives us an awareness that God is real, that God is there, but we still feel far from him. We still feel distant from this divine being. We still feel far away from the reality of a relationship with God. And so this far awayness has all types of reasons behind it, but the biggest wall separating us from God is this deep inner darkness, this sense of our own guilt, this sense of our own uh, brokenness. So we have this shame, this lust, this greed, this pride, this fear, this anger, this bitterness, that unforgiveness that seeps into our soul, this selfishness that gets on the inside, and it seems to create a barrier between us and God. The scripture calls that darkness on the inside of you sin, okay? This darkness on the inside, the scripture describes as sin. And so we're finding ourselves, if we're honest, with an awareness of God. This is your personal experience. I can tell you that awareness of God, but I don't know. He just seems far away. He seems distant, seems far from me. And that distance is attributed, according to the Bible, from this place called sin, this sin that keeps us separated. And so it's kind of like, you know, uh, a date with your ex-wife. It's like, uh, I don't think she wants to see me, right? Maybe you don't have an ex-wife, but you get the analogy. You know what I'm saying? I don't think I want to see her, and I don't think she wants to see me. She's probably not the number one person that wants to hang out. This inner something that keeps me from God. I want to suggest to you this morning that as we read a passage in, in the scriptures today, that the disciples, if anyone ever felt this far away feeling from God, it would be these disciples. See, for three years, if you know the story, they followed Jesus around, okay? And they saw him heal the sick people, and they saw him raise dead people. They saw him walk on water and speak to a storm, and it listened. I mean, wow, that's pretty significant, right? And the whole time, Jesus is saying, hey, guys, it's going to get tough. People are going to try to kill me when we go to Jerusalem. And they're all like, listen, Jesus, we're in it. We're in it to win it. If they go after you, they're going after us. They're going to have to get through us. Bam. And in the moment where Jesus gets betrayed, they all run and hide. 
Okay, that's the story. They all run and hide in the woods. And so they're hiding, they're afraid, and they watch from a distance as their king and as their lord and as their leader gets brutally beaten and killed. Okay? Now, three days later, I can guarantee you that they're all walking around with a deep sense of shame, a deep sense of distance and darkness, a deep sense of failure. Like, why did I turn my back and sell out when God needed me most? Take a look at verse 10 with me in the little passage that we just read. Jesus says this, do not be afraid, but go and tell my, what's that next word? My brothers? I mean, think about all the words you would use to describe your friends that just bailed on you and sold out three days earlier. I don't know if brothers would be at the top of your list, right? I mean, I can think of a few other words that you might think of, but brothers is probably not your church. Stop thinking about that. A uh, few other words that, uh, that, you know, you might come to mind, but, but brothers is probably not it. It's so interesting to me that Jesus is describing the individuals who just betrayed him three days earlier, and he's describing them as brothers, He's saying, go and tell my brothers that I want to meet them in Galilee. This has huge implications for us today. I want to give you four observations this morning. You can jot them down if you like or just listen to them. But four observations that we can pull from this story about our lives, okay? Because the scripture was given to us not just so that we would know the story, but so that we would also know our story, okay? And so four observations. One really quickly is super simple. God wants to meet up. He wants to meet up. Now, interestingly enough, he doesn't just want to meet up with his disciples. He wants to meet up with you. And when this gets into your bloodstream, it shifts the way you think about life. Like, hold on a second. God wants to meet up with me? Like, yeah, God, he wants to meet up with you. He wants to meet you somewhere. Jesus said he came to seek and to save those who were lost, okay? And so he's looking for you. He desires to meet up with you. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the website meetup.com. Meetup.com. Anybody? Two of us. Great. Okay. So meetup.com is a pretty big deal, and it makes you mildly lame because you don't know about it, all right? Uh, Meetup.com is a website where uh, where strangers with common interests can get together and meet up, all right? And so you might like art projects or playing tennis or doing dog activities or, or playing board games or, you know, whatever, archery or hiking or whatever it is. And if you sign up for meetup.com, you can find other people in your area that like the same thing, and you can go on an excursion with them and do something and participate together, okay? It's a pretty big deal, by the way. 21 million people subscribe to meetup.com, 193,000 groups. So it's interesting that you may have some strange little, you know, thing that you like to do, like you like to knit, that there are hundreds of other knitters all around you that you are not aware of because you never visited the website and met up. Now you know. I get 5% on everyone who signs up today. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Some people, I knew there was something about money. I knew it. You know, no. Relax. It's going to be all right. What if God had been wanting to meet up with you all along and you just didn't know his website? What if all along he's been wanting to meet up? What if all along he's been calling you? You know that thing inside of you that longs for relationship? that longs for community, that wants to have a tribe, that wants to be known, that wants to have family around you, that wants to have a band of brothers. You know that deep inner something that longs for communion with others? Now, there's a natural aspect to that as a human, but there's also a divine aspect to that. As you begin to sense inwardly that desire for community, if you're paying attention, you'll begin to smell the fragrance of the divine. Your heart longs for more than just a friend. It longs for relationship with your creator. He wants to meet up. 
He wants to meet up. Now, I notice here that he tells them to meet them in a specific place. I don't know if you noticed that. He says, I want them to go and meet me, my brothers, the guys that all betrayed me. I want them to meet me in Galilee, right? Now, if you know your geography and you came here to church to learn some, some geography, so if you know your geography, you know that Galilee is a bit of a haul from where they are in Jerusalem, okay? It's 63 miles away, all right? 63 miles away approximately, depending on where you're going in Galilee. It's a larger place. So 63 miles, that's a four to five day walk through the desert in the middle of the blazing heat, okay? So think about this. Jesus is resurrected in Jerusalem, okay? The disciples are in, guess where? Jerusalem. Jesus says, I know that we're both here. I'm going to meet you way over there, five days away through the blazing heat, all through the desert. Meet me there. And I can imagine that some of them were thinking, um, is there not any coffee shop available here in Jerusalem that we could connect? I mean, does it have to be, you know, that far? This is not a convenient plan, God. Maybe we could meet a little closer since we're already here. That would be advantageous. Second observation I want to make today, God often chooses an inconvenient place. He often chooses an inconvenient place. You know, I uh, remember the story of a friend that... Um, He wasn't following Jesus, but he knew many people who were praying for him that he would change his life, that he would turn his life over to Jesus. And one day he was playing his bass guitar in a bar and every night he played a different bar and get stoned and get high and get drunk and just do it again and again, night after night after night. And he thought this was the best thing for him. And so he's doing it again and again. And so one day he's playing his bass in the bar and the music is blaring, everything's blasting. He can't hear anything. And then all of a sudden he hears this voice just shout his name. And he looks around and nobody's calling him except God. And that day he put his bass down. He never played at another club for money to get drunk again. He began to follow. Sometimes it's inconvenient. That's not a a convenient place. Some of you right in the middle of your pain. Some of you right in the middle of some thesis. Some of you right in the middle of some big project. Some of you right in the middle of a difficult family situation. Right in the middle of your questions. Even right now, God is knocking on the door of your heart. God is calling you to closer relationship with him. It may not at all be a convenient time. You may still have questions four and five unanswered. But you begin to sense this inner awareness of a fragrance that is divine And you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to go to Galilee. God often chooses inconvenient places. Now, I want to emphasize the fact here that Galilee was not a foreign place to these people. Okay? It's not like he just randomly picked, you know, Timbuktu on the the map. Galilee was a very familiar place. Galilee was a place where all of the disciples had grown up. Galilee was a place where Jesus himself had grown up. And so it was a place that was very well known. In fact, it was the place where Jesus began his ministry. Stay with me this morning. So of the 33 most noted miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels, 25 of them occurred in Galilee. Of the 32 most well-known parables that Jesus taught, 19 of them were taught in Galilee. His first miracle was in Galilee, very good, yeah. He taught in the temple, mostly in Galilee. He healed the sick in Galilee. When he walked on water, it was the sea of... Tiberius, actually, but Galilee is another name for the same sea, so you got it right anyways, even though I kind of tricked you, I led you in that one, but yeah, yeah, so yeah, Galilee was a very well-known place, right? It's a place that's saturated with memories, okay? Now, for the disciples themselves, they knew Galilee like the back of their hand. They knew every little crooked path. They knew every little street. They knew every little blade of grass, every mountaintop, every corner. They had had their boyhood adventures and all their forts. All of their early days were built in this area of Galilee. It's a place that they well remember. Do you remember the place you grew up? Think back for a minute with me. 
to the place you grew up. Just go back there in your own mind. Where did you grow up? I can remember that for me, I grew up at 14 Barton Circle. Now it's been 20 years, 20 years since I've been at 14 Barton Circle. But if I close my eyes, I can still see the specifics of that house as clearly as the day I left it. I could see my room. I could see the TV that I used to play Mario Brothers on. Yeah, I'm that old. I used to play Mario Brothers on it. And I can remember the, you know, the place I had a yellow carpet and I spilled black ink one time and I kind of had this black ink spot that I just like kind of covered up. And so I had that in my room. I can remember the place where our dog Pandy used to sleep at the top of the stairs. I can remember my brother's, my brother's room where we played G.I. Joe's. And I remember the, the staircase that we used to slide down and, uh, and hold on to our blanket like a, like a sled, you know, going down the staircase. I can remember the back brook that goes through every little tree, every little rock through the brook. I can remember every little specific of that place. And I can say, honestly, sometimes, especially in tough times, I'll find myself drawn to that old neighborhood. And I'll just kind of drive through it. And people are like, what's that guy doing driving around? I'm like, leave me alone. I'm reminiscing, you know. <laughs> but it's interesting that, uh, that places seem to um, carry memories, right? They seem to carry specific memories. They don't just remind us of what has happened. They remind us of who we are. Places have that capacity to remind us who we are And you begin to remember some things. So I can imagine the disciples heading back into Galilee, right? And they had been so zoomed in. Don't miss this. This is for you today. They had been so zoomed in on the fact that, well, why did Jesus have to die? And, well, what is he going to do now since we betrayed him? And what, is he still with us? Or, or, you know, what's going to happen next? Are we going to get killed like he did? Or all this zoomed in perspective. But as they started to walk back to Galilee, I could see that they started zooming out and say, oh, hey, you remember that's where Jesus raised that guy from the dead? You remember that's where Jesus healed the sick guy that was crippled? Do you remember that? That's where Jesus had walked on the sea. Remember, that's right where we were, where he commanded the storm to stop. And as they walked through, they started to reminisce and see all the places, remember who they were, and began to see Jesus for who he really was, and started to see how all the pieces were fitting together. Third observation I want to make today is that Jesus must be seen in context. Jesus must be seen in context. What do I mean by that? You've all been alive long enough to know how like a politician can take a quote and pull it out of context and paint their opponent with that quote, right? And so they say, this guy hates all the, you know, all the rich people or this guy hates all the poor people, whatever it is, because they pull just this one little liner. And it's not fair to that politician because that doesn't fully explain his position, right? It's taken out of context. And because they zoomed in so close on those few words, it distorts his real perspective, right? In the same way, there are people in this room right now that you have zoomed in on one little aspect of who God is, and because of that, you're unable to see the bigger story. Stay with me today. Some of you are at a place where you're like, why did they have to die? Why did cancer have to? I don't have an answer for that. I don't understand that. And because that's what I see, I can't follow God. I got to keep a distance between me and God because that happened. And I don't have an answer for that. And because I don't have an explanation, he owes me to explain that. He should be answering all of my problems and all of my questions so because he doesn't I just can't trust him why did my family have to fall apart why did my situation have to get blown up why do I have to have that addiction that propensity that struggle because I don't get that I can't trust him and what God's challenging you to do today is zoom out a little bit and start to see the bigger story that God created you that you're not some cosmic accident That you're not even in this room by accident, but God created you specifically the way that you are. And he created you 
in such a way that you are hardwired to be in relationship with him. Now, if you've heard this truth before, I want you to hear it again. If you've never heard it before, listen up. God created you hardwired to be in relationship with him, but there is this sin that keeps you from him, this darkness in your own heart, this pride, this lust, this greed, this fear. It manifests in a thousand different flavors in all of our lives, but each of us carries it, this darkness inside of us that separates us from God. And so there is this boundary between us and God. But the crazy thing about what the scripture describes is that before God ever invented the human race, he already had a discussion within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they made an agreement called the covenant of redemption. And this covenant of redemption agreed that God would come in human flesh. He would live among us as a normal guy, unrecognized by most people. And then he would take upon himself a death he did not deserve. So that as a perfect man, perfect and blameless, never disobeying God in any way, the Son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, could hang on a cross and have all of the judgment for all of the sin, for all who had ever come to God, poured out upon him. So in other words, your sin, before you committed it, was already emptied out on the shoulders of Jesus, and there, hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago, this is what Christians believe, all of the sin of your life was experienced, the wrath of that sin, the pain of that sin, the suffering of that sin was experienced in the heart of Jesus so that God could then take all of your sin and place it upon the life of Jesus and then take all of the perfect, spotless, righteous, blameless perfection of Jesus and place it into your account so that for all eternity, God would not judge you based upon the stupid things that you've done, but instead he will judge you based upon on the record of his perfect son. That's the news that the scripture describes that your position before God is not based upon how well you did. See, religion will tell you, give a little more money, do a little more stuff, right? Help a few more people. And then maybe God will like you and you'll live your whole life on shore. But true faith in Christ tells you that there's nothing you can do to get to a holy God. Instead, it has been done on your behalf for you in completion already. You are spotless, blameless, perfect, and forgiven in every nuance, even of sins that you have not yet committed because Christ sees you outside of time and fully forever forgives. And he receives you as his own. Jesus has got to be seen in context because he didn't stay dead. Three days after he paid the penalty of your sin, he walked out of the grave to forever prove to all who would ever believe that the check that paid for their sin had cleared, that all sin had been washed away. The scripture says if he didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We have no confidence that truly he paid for our guilt. But because this man walked out of the grave and no one's been able to find his body since, fulfilling 300 prophecies in their specific nuanced uh, speaking, spoken before he was ever born, this one man, Jesus of Nazareth, perfectly fulfills all of them and then walks out of the grave and transforms 12 terrified, impoverished Galilean peasants into an incredible army of love that spread this truth all over the world so that more people rely in this one resurrected, forgotten carpenter than any other person for salvation and forgiveness. That's what we believe. And this resurrection from the dead is the stamp that proves 
his truth. Here's the crazy thing I want to emphasize today. If you forget everything else I say. Already right now. You're in this room. You hear my voice. You smell that? Inwardly. That's the fragrance of truth. When I was just speaking there, something inside of you was beginning to come alive. Something inside of you was beginning to say yes. Something inside of you was opening up. What you're smelling there is the same thing Buck smelled from 500 miles away. He smelled the scent of his master. And inwardly, you can smell the scent of your creator when his truth is proclaimed. Inwardly, you become aware of it and you say, you know what? I think this is truth. All my life, I've just wanted to do what's right. I've just wanted to be right with God, but I've done all this religious stuff, but it's never got me there. And here's this guy up there in a black jacket talking about how Jesus has already forgiven my sin, how Jesus already accepted me, how Jesus already paid my penalty so I could be in perfect relationship with God. What if it was true? What if it was real? If it was, it would be worth my whole life. I want to emphasize one thing Jesus says in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me. Five words I want you to remember this morning. It's my fourth observation, real simple. Jesus will take you back. Jesus will take you back. Jesus will take you back. Will you come back? Jesus will take you back if if you'll come. The penalty of Christ paid on the cross, the penalty that he paid must be received. Not received just with a mental consent. Okay, I believe in that. But relied upon and embraced. In other words, it's as if you were drowning in the ocean and someone said, here's a life jacket. And you said, I believe in that life jacket. That doesn't help at all. You've got to grab a hold of that life jacket. You've got to put it on. You've got to buck- buckle all the straps. You've got to say, this thing, I don't care what I lose. If my shoes fall off, if my wallet comes out, it doesn't matter. If I got this life jacket, it's the most important thing. I am going to cling to it because it keeps me from drowning. This is what it means to rely on Christ. That I throw my whole life on him. That I give my whole self fully to him. This is what it means to trust in Christ. When the scripture says, come to me. When Jesus says, I'll take you back. It's not just a mental decision. It is a personal surrender. I wonder if you're sitting in this room right now. You can hear my voice. If you're at a place of peace with God. Because I promise you. I promise you that God wants to meet up. He wants to meet up, but it may not be convenient according to your standards. He may not be exactly the convenient place because you got to see him in context. You got to zoom out and see the great story, not just your issues or struggles. Here's what I found. When you trust him with the big story, he starts to answer the specifics of the small story. But if you would just zoom out and see the great plan of God, that his love is so perfect, so profound and complete, That he gave his son for your sins. That he rose from the dead to prove that it was completely paid. And that now you are at a place where you must throw yourself upon that thing, that trust, that truth. This is where you find yourself this morning. Would you stand to your feet? want you to do just a little exercise with me if you would if you don't mind just take a moment and close your eyes just take a moment and close your eyes
as we prayed about this Easter Sunday, the thing that we wanted to um, emphasize today is this idea of taking me back. So with your eyes closed just for a moment, I just, you know, wherever you're at in your faith walk, just take a moment and close your eyes. Right here in the stillness of this room with all of our eyes shut just as a way to focus. Let Jesus take you back right now to the broken places. Take you back to the time that you didn't get an answer. Forgotten dreams. The deep hurts. You remember that old story? It used to be on every grandma's wall, every bathroom. About the footprints in the sand. How the man looked back at his life and he said, Lord, it seems that every time things got tough, there's only one set of footprints. And every time things were easy, there were two. Why did you leave me? In the middle of my difficult moments. And the Lord says back to him, friend, I didn't leave you in those moments. That's when I carried you. See, when you look back, you may not get every answer. The disciples didn't understand a whole lot of things. But as they went back to Galilee, as they looked back, as Jesus brought them back, they realized, you know what? I don't get that. And I don't get that. But I realize that you've been there all along. And I realize that you want my good, not my harm. With your eyes closed in this moment, let him take you back to the cross. In your own mind, just open up your heart. See a man hanging on a tree. Seems so obscure, so random, so irrelevant. And yet this one man hanging on a tree in the eyes of a God who created all things pays the debt of all the sins of your life. Let him take you back to the grave when you run up and say, well, we're here to mourn the loss of our Savior. And yet when you get there, it's not full of a man's body, but it's empty. He's risen. The story's true. It's not some fairy tale. It is transformation. You look around and see all around you the hundreds of people whose lives have been changed by the grace of God believing in the story of the good news of Jesus. And you realize that this is true. And all along you can smell the fragrance of his grace reaching out. With your eyes closed this morning, are you far from God? Just take this moment right now. This is a, what the scripture calls a kairos moment, a divine moment. Not every moment is created equal. This moment is special. This moment is divine. In this unique, specific moment, right now, right here, God is asking you a simple question. Will you come? Will you come with all your baggage, with all your fears, with unanswered questions? Will you come? Will you come right now? Will you come? You can sense him on the inside, but will you choose him? See, life is desperately short, desperately short. And before we know it, we'll stand before our creator and our eyes will behold him. But until that day, you have a choice right now, right here to come. Will you respond to his call and find life? When you throw yourself on God, when you trust in Jesus as your savior, when you surrender your whole heart to him, he comes and he fills you with his peace, with his assurance. 
you're here today and maybe you feel far from God. Maybe you've known all the religious answers, but you've not walked with your creator. This is your moment to surrender your life back over to him. Maybe this is news for you and you haven't heard these words before. Friend, this is your moment right now to surrender your heart to him. Cross the line of faith. Dare to believe. Risk and trust now. Will you choose God? Will you surrender your life? With your eyes closed in just this moment, a personal moment between you and God. With your heart still and your eyes closed, will you respond with a yes and trust in Christ to save you? to forgive you, to accept you, to adopt you. 10 seconds of stillness. Just let this moment, just open up your heart. On the count of three, I'm gonna just ask you, if you are at a place where you say, Justin, I'm far from God and I need to turn my life over to him. God knows your story. He knows the specifics of your life. You might be 52 years old or 14. You might be 86. No matter what your story is, you say, today I came in far from God and I need to give my life to him. I need to surrender to Jesus. I need to open up my heart to him. I'm gonna count to three in just a second. Then I'm gonna ask you after I've counted to three just to raise your hand. This is your physical symbol of surrender today. This is your moment to say, I trust, I turn, I throw myself on the cross and on what Christ has done for me. I believe and I receive personally right now. One, two, three. Stick up your hand. Say, that's me. God bless you. God bless you. Stick up your hand. Say, that's me. God bless you. You can put it down after you've put it up. Say, that's me. God bless you in the balcony. Anybody else say, that's me. I just need to turn my life over to Christ right now. God bless you. You can put your hand down. Anybody else say, that's me. I just need to turn my life over to Christ all across the room. Anybody else say, that's me. Thank you, Jesus. Say, that's me. I I need to trust him. I need to turn my life over to him today. I need to surrender to him. He knows your story. He knows the specifics of your life. And this is your moment. This is your time. I'm going to ask every single person in this room today, if you've trusted in Christ in the past, or if you're just turning to Christ today and you're one of the many, many people today that raised their hands, I'm going to ask you right now in this moment to pray this prayer with me. So all of our church family, I'm asking you to pray this prayer with me as a declaration of your need for God because that doesn't go away. Okay, and these words, the scripture gives an incredibly profound truth. It says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is our king and we believe in our hearts that God truly rose him from the dead, then we will be saved. That God takes the righteousness of Christ and transfers it to us and takes the the brokenness of us and transfers it to Christ and we are received by God. So as we pray this today, I encourage you inwardly cross the line as you outwardly articulate these truths. Say with me, God, come on everybody, God, I need you. I confess I have sinned. I need grace. Today I turn to you. Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose again. Right now, forgive me. Wash me. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit. I give you my life. I surrender. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. I believe. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.